Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Hello to all of you joining us at the West Campus, South Campus, if you're joining us online, wherever you are. Uh, thanks so much for joining us for this can't miss sermon, which is so overhyped. But you guys are used to things being overhyped in your world. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, you know, everybody is trying to get you to participate in some can't miss event. You've, you know, seen these postings or you've seen these advertisements or you've heard these things on the radio, you know, you can't miss this concert or this game or uh, whatever it is. They're trying to raise your level of interest and urgency so that you'll want to participate, so that you will buy that ticket or book your spot for their can't miss event. But may I ask, are those really can't miss events? I mean, really, what constitutes a can't miss event? Let me give you an example. I, I don't know what the can't miss event is of the fall, nor is, am I, don't look at me for trend advice. I'm never cutting edge, okay? Uh, but I don't know what that is now, but I looked back, and according to the Travel Channel, there were a few can't miss events this past summer. Of the 10 that they listed, I'll give you three. The first one was the 60th anniversary at Disney. The second one was the Lobster Festival in Maine. And the third was the U.S. Open Golf Tournament. Those are can't-miss events. Now, let me ask, how many of you missed all three of those events? I missed all three of them. Are you doing okay I'll tell you, at least from my perspective, I am doing just fine. So their can't-miss events aren't really can't-miss events, but there is one can't-miss event that the Bible describes, and it's been hyped up for 2,000 years, and, it's not, and all of that hype is 100% warranted. And while it's been on the biblical calendar for 2,000 years, I can't tell you when it's going to happen, but the good news is it's not sold out, and the tickets are free, but I guarantee you, you don't want to miss this can't-miss event that's called the rapture, and that's what we're going to talk about today, so if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, uh, that's page 830, if you're opening one of those blue Bibles, whatever venue you're in. You will need your sermon notes, and you will need a Bible. You'll need both today, and I will absolutely need your minds engaged, and certainly your hearts too, but your minds will have to be engaged today as we talk about some things in some very complex ways as we continue our series, uh, Living with the End in Mind. Now, uh, by way of review, I just want to walk through some of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, one of the things at the top of your sermon notes is the timeline that we've had as an anchor for you uh, each week. And we've been using this timeline so that you understand the events that are to come. Now, remember, you are here in the church age. One of the things that I want to tell you, though, about this timeline is all of the events on this timeline are not in Matthew 24. The reason why we're giving you this comprehensive timeline, though, is so that you understand what the end time events are. 
Matthew 24 only has some of these events, but not all. All of the events are in the New Testament and throughout Scripture that we find. And so that's why we're trying to give you a comprehensive timeline. But that could be confusing as we explain some of the things in Matthew 24, which is why I wanted to, to mention that to you. But what we've been talking about the past few weeks as we've been walking through Matthew 24, if you'll remember, we talked about how the end was beginning or for when, they, when Israel, Jerusalem, rejected Jesus. If you'll remember that, that was at the very end of chapter 23. Chapter 23, they reject Jesus, and he's lamenting over the city. He said, I wish I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. And so they reject him. So he walks out of the city, goes and sits on the Mount of Olives, which is just overlooking the Temple Mount. There, please go back and review this. I don't have time to go through all of it. Uh, but he's, he's basically speaking back to the city. And the city is representative of the entire nation of Israel, remember? And so he is talking to them. And when he's talking to them, he says, because you have rejected me, let me tell you what the timeline looks like for you, Israel, for you, the, the people of Jerusalem, for you, Israelites. This is what it's going to look like. And you're going to go through a tribulation. That's what we covered in verses 4 through 28. And then last week we covered, he said, I'm, but I'm going to come again. That was a, the second coming that was in verses 29 to 31. That's what we did last week. And now we're going to come to a portion where Jesus is going to start telling the Israelites what it's going to be like when he comes again at the second coming. He says it's going to be like this. And he's going to use three very distinct parables. Now we're going to cover two of those parables over the next two weeks. We're not going to cover the first one, which is the fig tree. Now, one thing that I need you to know about a fig tree is whenever a fig tree is mentioned in Scripture, a fig tree always represents Israel. So he's using this fig tree analogy first to transition from the second coming into what it's going to be like when he comes again and at his second coming. Okay, he uses a fig tree analogy, and then he says this, beginning in verse 36. I want you to follow along with me, okay? This is not going to come up on the screen. So beginning in verse 36, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And let's stop right there. May God bless the reading of his word. May our hearts be open to hear from him. Now we're going to take a pause for just a second. I'm going to go back to week one very quickly. Now you see why I need your minds like totally on today. Sharp. Man, when it rained and it was a lazy kind of Sunday morning, I was like, gosh, come on, guys. That, that was before you were even here. I was praying for you. 
back in week one, I gave you three yes and no answers to three questions, if you remember this. The third question I asked was, is every part of Matthew 24 and 25 going to apply to you? And I answered it yes and no. Yes, because we're going to give you Monday morning application in every sermon. But no, not every part will, will be applicable to you because not every part was written to you. Today we are going to see this yes and no play out because this portion of Matthew 24 was not written to you. This portion that I just read of Matthew 24 was written to Israel. This was written to them as a nation and what it would be like for them when Jesus came again at his second coming. Now, you might ask, well, Cody, he's talking about the second coming here. Why are you talking about the rapture? Because you said that early on. You're right. I did say that. And the reason why I'm going to talk about the rapture today is because that, this passage has some imagery that has linked some people and saying this is the rapture, and it's not. This is the second coming. This is the next thing for Israel as, as they go through the tribulation. But the next thing for you is the rapture. So that's why I'm covering this. And so what we're essentially doing is we are going to listen in to a conversation that Jesus is having with Israel. And we're going to eavesdrop on their conversation and take some lessons that he's trying to teach them and apply them to ourselves the church. Does that make sense? Uh, let me give you an illustration. So the other day, I was talking to our 10-year-old son, Dax, and I was talking to him. He needed to do some of his homework, and I was talking to him about a principle that I, I want him to learn, and that is, Dax, we work first, and we play second. So trying to teach him, we, we do our work and we finish our work before we start playing so that he would get that ingrained in himself and so he can do his homework, et cetera. So he's fine and he went off and did his homework. The next day we're getting ready to go to school and Hayes, our six-year-old, was ready before, I mean, before he was ever ready. I mean, he's, he's always usually the last one to be ready and he was on it. I mean, shoes on, backpack, water, lunch everything like 10 minutes before we were going to leave. And I was like, way to go, buddy. I'm so, I'm so proud that, that you are ready to go early. And he goes, dad, work first, play second. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> my heart was melted. I mean, I just absolutely loved it. Now I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't give that lesson to Hayes. I gave that lesson to Dax, specifically about Dax finishing his homework. But Hayes heard that lesson, applied it to himself, and understood what he needed to do in his particular circumstance. That's what we're doing today. We're listening into a conversation that Jesus is having with Israel, but we're going to take those concepts and we're going to apply it to us as the church so that we can learn. Because essentially, the, the nature and character of God is the same. And his expectations of them to be ready to meet him face to face, it's the same expectation that he has for us to be ready and meet him face to face. 
So we need to apply some of those same lessons. And so that's where we're headed today. I want to differentiate for you uh, specifically because sometimes this passage is interpreted as the rapture and it's not. And here's why that's important. Because if this is the rapture, then the church goes through the tribulation. And the church does not go through the tribulation. I'll explain that later on. Okay, that's why it's important. So I want to differentiate the rapture from the second coming. Then I want to explain what the rapture is and give you some applications. Amen? Okay, you're engaged. Here we go. The rapture and the second coming are separate events. I need you to understand that. The rapture and the second coming are separate events. Now let me go back to what he had talked about there in Matthew 24. When he says, he book, if you notice, he bookend, he says, this is what it will be like with the coming of the Son of Man. And then he gives you an analogy, and he says, this is what it will be like at the coming of the Son of Man. He tells you, this is his bookend, what it's going to be like when he comes again at the second coming, at the end of the tribulation. And remember, when he's coming, what is he coming to do? We covered this last week. He's coming to establish his kingdom, and that also means to judge his enemies. That's, that's why he's coming. And he likens his second coming. Judgment is a key word there. Because when he comes again, he says it's going to be like the days of Noah. Now, why in the world does he bring up Noah? You, you remember who Noah is from Genesis chapter 6. Okay, remember what happened. In Genesis chapter 6, wickedness is growing on the earth. God is upset that wickedness is growing and, and corruption in man, his, who was created in his image, mankind, is growing. And he is upset with that. And so he is going to judge wickedness. That's, that's what he's doing. That, that's what the flood was. The flood was God's judgment. But he did not judge everyone. He saved those who had faith in him, which was Noah and his family. Remember, and that's why he told Noah to build an ark that would float amidst the flood so that they would be saved. And so when the floods came, who was washed away? The wicked, right? That, that's what happened in Genesis chapter 6. The wicked are swept away. They are washed away in judgment. The only ones who are left are Noah and his family. That's what he likens his second coming to, is that at the second coming, his own that were saved through the tribulation, they will be left to go into his millennial kingdom where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. They are left. His enemies will be swept away. He even uses those words here. They will be swept away in judgment. Same as it was in Noah's day in Genesis chapter 6. That's why he says that suddenly it will seem as if some are swept away. One man will be swept away as they are working in the field together. One swept away to judgment, just as in the days of Noah, and one saved, like Noah. Women, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be swept away to judgment. One will be saved to enter that millennial kingdom. That's what he is talking about here. 
He's talking about the second coming and his judgment. And if you were left after his judgment, it's because you were righteous because of your faith in him. Saved to go into his righteous reign to come. That's what he's saying. If you're swept away at this time, you're swept away to judgment. At, that, at this time, at the second coming for Israel, you want to be left behind. But you are not Israel. This is not talking about the rapture. Now, for some of you, I, I know you're like, what in the world does rapture mean? I've given you a definition on your sermon notes so that you understand what we're talking about. The rapture is the event when Christ miraculously and physically removes the church from the earth prior to the tribulation. When he miraculously and physically removes the church, takes them away from the earth prior to, before the tribulation begins. Now you can see how that, this imagery of swept away and one left and one here, that's why some people have interpreted this as the rapture, but I do not think he's talking about the rapture for a few reasons that I'll just go over quickly again. First, remember the audience. He's talking to Israel. He's not talking to the church. That's why I pointed out that the first parable that he uses is the fig tree. Good. Yes, the fig tree. So he's talking to Israel. The second reason why I I think this is not the rapture is because of the purpose of the tribulation. Remember, Dr. Bailey talked about this. What is the purpose of the tribulation? It is to discipline Israel. Israel to woo them back to himself. The church, his church, does not need to be disciplined. They already believe in him. Why do they need to go through the tribulation then? They don't. So that's why he's removing them from the tribulation because it serves no purpose for his people, the church. That's the purpose of the tribulation is the second reason. Third is the context. He's talking about the second coming. That's what he's been talking about since verse 29. And also, that's why I pointed out the bookends. So is the coming of the Son of Man. So is the coming of the Son of Man. Context. Finally, just compare the events. Compare the events of the second coming in the rapture. And I have these on your uh, sermon notes, this table that compares them so that we can go throughout, uh, so you can understand them. Okay, the second coming as described in Matthew 24. This is as it's described in what, what the chapter that we've been going through. The second coming concludes the tribulation. Jesus comes to be with his own. The church returns with Christ to the earth, visible, noticeable to everyone on earth. We talked about that last week. It would be visible, physical, and powerful, his return. And it will happen after the tribulation events. That's Matthew 24. The rapture of the church as described throughout the New Testament, because there are a lot of epistles through the New Testament that were written specifically to the church. That occurs before the tribulation. The church is taken to be with Jesus. Rather than Jesus coming back, the church is taken to be with him. The church meets Jesus in the air rather than Jesus returning to the earth. The rapture is not described as visible to the entire earth. And the rapture can happen at any moment. You see, the second coming is time stamped at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Rapture 
We don't know exactly when that is going to happen. So why is the rapture important for the church? It's because the rapture removes Christ's church from the earth so they do not suffer. That's why. Again, it goes back to the purpose, the purpose of the tribulation. You see, God, God has a purpose for everything that happens in your life and everybody else's lives. And he has a purpose for the tribulation too. And it's to bring people to faith in him. And some people need those desperate times so, they take the, so that they take the desperate measure to place their faith in him. But the church has already placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So there's no reason for them to go through it. And so we get this picture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of what it will be like when he removes his church from the earth before the tribulation so that they do not suffer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Do you see how this picture is different than the one we just read in Matthew 24 about who's left and who's taken away? Do you see that? Head nods are fine. Okay, good. You see this. That's why it's, this is a separate and distinct event that, that Jesus is removing his church before the suffering on the whole earth occurs. Now, there is at least one of you that is sitting there saying, Cody, I don't see the word rapture in here. And you are right. You're right. In fact, you will not find the word rapture in Scripture. So you're saying you just made this up? I did not just make it up. Rapture is actually, the, where we get our English word rapture comes from a Latin translation of the Greek word, which means to be caught up. That's, that's, that's as simple as it is. It just means to be caught up, the Greek, the Greek word. And actually, the, the, there are other translations of that Greek word that mean to seize or to carry off. Or one of my favorite uh, uh, ways that it's defined is to claim for oneself by snatching away. To claim for oneself by snatching away. Is that not what is happening here in 1 Thessalonians 4? It's exactly what's happening. Jesus is saying, they are already mine, therefore they do not need to go through the tribulation, this awful time that we read about in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 28. They don't need to go through it, so I will snatch them away as my own. They already belong to me. And then in the seven-year tribulation, we'll see who belongs to me. So he's taking out to be caught up. That's where we get the English word rapture 
from. And he's snatching them away so that they don't have to go through all the troubles. In fact, if you keep going in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as you continue Paul's line of thought to the church in Thessalonica, in chapter 5 verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. We are not destined. Why does he use the word destined? Because I think he's talking about this very thing, this rapture of the church. We're not destined to go through the tribulation for wrath that will come upon the whole earth. See, this is certain. This is certain that Jesus will at one time come and rapture his church miraculously and physically from the earth. That is certain. The time when it will occur, I don't know. I can't tell you when that happens. And we don't know. Scripture doesn't give us a time of when that happens because it will happen suddenly. This this event will be sudden. See, Jesus will suddenly come to take his own to be with him. To seize one's own, to claim for oneself. He will suddenly come to take us to be with him because we belong to him. In fact, he says that even when he's talking to uh, the disciples in John chapter 14. And for those that say, well, Cody, was he talking to Israelite disciples? Yes, he was. But remember, he's talking to disciples that even came after them. If you go all the way through his train of thought in the upper room discourse, all the way through chapter 17, when he prays for those disciples that would come after the 12. I know I'm confusing some, but just helping to explain. Okay, so... He's, he's talking to them in John chapter 14, and he says, let your, not your hearts be troubled. He just told them that he was going to have to leave them. And he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And guess what? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He is telling them right there that he is going to go to prepare a place for them. And he's going to the cross to prepare that place so that we can be reconciled to a holy God. But he says, if I'm going to prepare that place for you, guess what? I'm going to come back and take you. Because remember what he says there in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have to have a holy escort to get into heaven. You don't get there by yourself. And he's going to come and take his own to be with him. But that will be sudden. The other thing that will be sudden is Jesus will suddenly come to transform his own to a glorified body. I know this is blowing some people's minds here, and this is mind-blowing. Jesus will suddenly come to transform his own to a glorified body. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, how are the dead in Christ going to rise first? They have to have glorified bodies. They have to be transformed in some way. Their soul that has been with Christ 
since they trans- transition from this earth to God's presence, meets the resurrected body in a glorified sense, and somehow those are met together in some miraculous way as they meet God in the air. I don't know how that happens. That's as much explanation as I can give you. But the dead in Christ rise first, then those who are alive are taken up to meet Jesus in the air. That's what 1 Thessalonians says. The only way this can happen is in a glorified body because you are not expected to be able to fly. That's caused some people some anxiety, okay? He doesn't expect that you can fly. So he will somehow miraculously give us a glorified body, a glorified state where we meet him in the air so that we are removed. That's what he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now you wonder why I can't explain it anymore, okay? He says it's a mystery here. The apostle, <laughs> we shall not all sleep or, or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. We will suddenly be transformed and we will suddenly be saved from experiencing the tribulation. See, Jesus will suddenly come to save his own from that time of great trouble. Discussed, just before in verses 4 to 28. If you look at Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 10, in Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking specifically to the church in Philadelphia, but as he's giving these messages to the seven churches, he says this, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. What is that hour of trial that is coming on the whole world? The tribulation. To try those who dwell on the earth. This is why the church doesn't need to be there. They don't need to be tried. They've already placed their trust in him. And just another reason why I think the church is removed from the the earth before the tribulation, if you're looking at Revelation, which is all about the end times, if you look at it, Jesus is speaking to the church in chapters 1 to 3, 1 through 3. Then all of a sudden, from chapters 4 to 18, we do not see the church. And that is explaining the tribulation, but no church to be found. And then all of a sudden, funny, beginning in Revelation chapter 19 all the way through the end, the church shows back up. It's because we are removed from the tribulation. Even Revelation tells us that. And so this sudden event, we have to be prepared for. See, the rapture is imminent, so I need you to live with the end in mind. The rapture is imminent, so I need you to live with the end in mind. And by imminent, I mean it can happen at any time. The rapture is imminent and inevitable. 
And so you have to be ready. In fact, some of the principles that he was saying to Israel, if you look at verses 42 and 44, he says, therefore, stay awake. Therefore, be ready. Those principles we can eavesdrop in and listen into and go, hey, we should probably be ready. We should probably stay awake because in a twinkling of an eye, this is going to happen. The rapture is going to occur. And so here's what that means for us today. First, don't delay joining the family before the family trip. <laughs> I'm glad to get some of you back. <laughs> I know I've lost some of you through this, but thanks for hanging. You guys are awesome. I love you guys to death. Um, the rapture is a family trip. And only the family goes. And it reminds me that we're coming up on the season. Um, every Thanksgiving night, my dad watches Home Alone. Have you ever seen that? With the old one with Macaulay Culkin. It's so funny that my dad loves that movie. That movie is a comedy about a boy missing the family trip. If you miss this family trip, it will be a tragedy. There's nothing comical about it. And the only way you can join the family to be on this family trip is to be born again. You're born into this family. You place your trust in Jesus Christ, dying to your old self and allowing him to remake you new born again into his family, placing your trust in him and him alone as the only way to be made right with the holy God so that you can go and be with him forever. You have to have a heavenly escort on this family trip. And he's coming for all of those who are his own. So don't delay joining the family before the family trip. Second, don't cling to common things with uncommon affection. I don't know what you're holding on to in this world, but it's really hard to get away when you're holding on to things that are here. Don't cling too closely to the things of this world because you weren't made for these temporal, perishable things. Don't give these perishable things uncommon affection. Give your uncommon affection, give your utmost affection to the only thing that will last, the imperishable, the, the, the Lord himself. And then finally, don't allow your waiting to turn into doubting. Don't allow your waiting to turn into doubting. Delay can cause uncertainty, anxiety, and discouragement. But just because you may feel like the rapture is delayed does not mean that it's not imminent, and it doesn't mean that it's, inevitable. it's not inevitable. It is. It will happen at a moment when the world and you and I both least expect it. That's why we've got to stay awake. That's why we've got to be ready. That's why we've got to book our spot. That's why we have to have him pay for our ticket and tell him we want to be on the family trip. Because you can't miss this can't miss event. Let me pray for us.
God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises that you uh, have come not so that we would suffer through the trials and tribulations, Lord God, but so that we would be saved through them, just as you did Noah in those days. And so, Lord, uh, I pray that you would give our hearts comfort, hope, and encouragement. Lord, I also pray that you give us a sense of urgency that if there's anyone on the fence about placing their trust in you, Lord God, that they would realize that you have been pursuing them. You want them to be a part of the family, that they would die to their old self, place their trust in you, and be made new, a new creation in Christ Jesus. So Lord God, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you that you have a plan. Help us to live with that end in mind. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.